0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 279 with Dan Cable. This is a powerful conversation. I think you're really going to dig it because Dan has done loads of research and figured out a master key for what makes work feel alive and awesome versus not so alive and awesome that's deep within our very human nature. So, you'll learn one, the work that we're biologically hardwired to enjoy, two, how to rev up your aliveness using the three key triggers. And three, a one-hour intervention that reduces attrition by over 30%. That's one hour one time, not one hour weekly or monthly. Pretty cool. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, go on over to awesomeatyourjob.com slash F279. Now here's Dan's story. Dan Cable is a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. Dan's areas of teaching, research, and consulting include employee engagement, leading change, organizational culture, and its effects on sustained competitive advantage, leadership development, and mindset, and the linkage between brands and employee behaviors. Big thanks to Dan for taking some time to chat, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thank you, Pete. This will be fun.
0: Oh, I really think it will be. You are award-winning in the field of organizational behavior with getting the uh, best article in OB title a couple times. I'd love to know, what's your secret? If it's happened twice, you must be good instead of lucky.
1: Um, Can't we just be lucky? I, (laughs) uh, 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 I think it is a little bit of luck. I know that on both of these articles, it started with me not even knowing if the research would work. One of them, the first one... With Virginia K, we were interested in knowing whether this tendency to want other people to know who you really are, the fancy phrase is self-verification, that you want other people in the world to know who you really are. We wanted to look whether that applied when you were trying to get a job. So in this context of trying to meet recruiters and interview with them, do you still want that? And we found that there were actually large differences between people and whether or not they did or they didn't. So I think that that's one thing. And then the second thing is this most recent article with my co-authors, Fran Gino and Brad Stotts, they're at Harvard and UNC respectively. We, We actually put something in place that we didn't think would really work. It had to do with when you're first hiring people having them write about situations when they were at their very best and we had them do that the very first day and we didn't really know what that would do exactly we had some ideas and some theory but um it's a pretty strange thing to do on the first day and lo and behold both of those things paid off so maybe that's the secret
0: Well, see, that's not our primary topic, but I'm just so intrigued by this stuff. So if we could unpack it a little bit. So with self-verification, that's intriguing because I would think that very much would be the case. I'd imagine some folks would say, you know what, you got to know me and embrace all of who I am, or I don't want to work here. And so you have that attitude versus I want to give them exactly what they want because I want to nail this job. So I'm curious. Now, do we know if? one strategy is more adaptive or optimal based on some measure?
1: Yes. And it depends on what measure you take. So here's a couple of things that we have found. And this is actually on point if we're going to move toward the book, because one of the activators of the seeking system is self-expression and playing to your strengths and kind of letting people know what you're really all about. So It's not a bad lead. And in some ways, it is what led me to start studying what I study in terms of the book. So that's kind of fun. But I will tell you that in terms of what we found in the study, in the very first study, the one that won this award, we found that people differ and they differ reliably. And so that some people care about this a lot more than others. Some are just like, I just want the job. (laughs) I will say whatever words lead to, here's the job offer. (laughs) And then there's other people that say... It really doesn't work unless you know who I really am. And they'd even be willing to take less money to have the people around them accept them for who they really are. And so we called that self-verification striving. And what we found is in the short run, there wasn't much of a difference between those that wanted that, didn't want that. But in the long run, meaning over the course of the next year, the self-verification strivers did better. They were both rated as more effective by their bosses, and they rated their own work as being more pleasurable. They had greater job satisfaction. And so I would call that a win. I would say that on average, it doesn't seem to hurt you, but what it does seem to do is help you find a fit where you know, you're know you more likely to find an environment where you can be yourself and kind of let your strengths shine.
0: Yeah, th- that makes sense. I totally buy that. In terms okay, of
1: one more little bit, let's do it. <laughs> In a second study that just published last year, in 2017, we looked specifically at, well, what if you're a crappy applicant?
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> and we did find that it hurts you. We find that what happens is for the good applicants, it really helps. And for the bad applicants, it really hurts. And so it is a matter of being willing to be in it for the long term and say, I'm not going to just say the happy, nice thing. And that's going to hurt me in the short term. I'm going to be less likely to get any given job. But over the long term, I will find a job and a company where I would have a better fit. Right. Yeah. So okay. It's not that makes quite sense. As happy of a story. You know,
0: if if you're just <laughs> like, you know what, what's most important to me is that I could watch Netflix as many hours as possible.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I got to find that job. That's and who, that who might I am. Be like Netflix Groupie. <laughs> there might be that yeah. job, and you just uh-huh. got to keep looking for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Okay, and so then. I'm also curious, what's the rough split between self-verification strivers and not Just for funsies.
1: One way to think of it is a normal distribution so that most people are just in the middle, you know, so it's kind of a boring but true answer. And what happens is plus or minus one standard deviation, you have about 70% of the people right there. Now, there are people that are kind of, you know, two and a half, three standard deviations out, which means they're sort of rabid self-verifiers. Like they really, really need you to know what they're all about. (laughs) And, And there are other people that just do not care. You know, again, it's just sort of like Teflon people. You can actually say the words for me if you want, as long as I get the job. So I think that most of us are in the middle, but some of us lean toward that authentic self-expression and we have um, an interest in being who we really are and we don't really like wearing a mask.
0: Right, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Well, so now let's dig a little bit into your book, uh, Alive at Work, sort of what's, what's the big idea here?
1: Okay, I think that the coolest thing is that all this disengagement that seems prevalent not only in the United States but all around the world. and when I say disengagement is prevalent, I mean the numbers look like seventy percent in um, some surveys, the Gallup Institute, they'll go out and they'll, they'll measure a million five hundred thousand people. you know they'll measure a hundred different organizations, they'll go to 63 different countries, and it looks like about seventy percent of the people, are disengaged from work. If I had to summarize that quickly, it means that work is somewhere that they go to shut off. You know, it's almost like, I call it the commute to the weekend. You sort of like get in there and you become this thing that really isn't you. And we know also that about 18% of people are actively disengaged, meaning that they're actually repulsed by what they do all day. They are almost disgusted by their work.
0: Now, Dan, I feel like you're one of the few people I can ask this question. All right. So, Gallup, do they not have a bit of what you might call a vested interest since they're providing consultation and assessment and solutions to addressing engagement problems in having the disengagement numbers look bad? I'm not imputing their integrity or anything, but I guess... In a way, it's a bit of a judgment call. Like, based on, on this s- survey a- assessment, what is the threshold by which I'm going to make a call that that is a, a disengaged person? And, and I, I've tried to find what the, the formula is. I think it may be proprietary in terms of, you know, what responses on what questions trigger engaged or disengaged. But maybe could you give us the, the bird's eye view? Do other data sources seem to confirm that this is the ballpark of the state of play right now with engagement?
1: Let's just talk about this a little bit. What I'd say is the different vested interests do seem to come up with very similar answers. For example, Deloitte in 2017 did a big one of these. And it's not shockingly similar, but it was just as bad. And in fact, they asked one question about Do you feel like you can be your best at work? Is work a place that you can be your best? They found 80% were saying no. They were saying 80% of the people are saying that work is not a place that I can be my best. So, but Deloitte might also have something to gain as, you know, as you well know, they're also a consulting shop. Here's what I can do because I don't know the magic formulas they use. And I don't know when they publish these things, you know, how much we can believe in every bit of it versus take it with a grain of salt. I can tell you that many, many of my friends would fail the test of engagement. So why don't I tell you what the test of engagement would be? And you can think about your own friends and your own family and how you grew up and what your parents thought. Number one, engagement means you engage your body. So that's easy. That means you show up, <laughs> you get your hands to work and you say, how do you want me to use these? And the idea is I don't really care. You know, you might want me to weld something. You might want me to fix something else. Or you might. But if you pay the most money, I'll take the job. And it's kind of a transactional way of thinking of work. And um, the second approach, you can engage your, your brain, your mind. And this approach says, don't tell me exactly what to do. Tell me what you want accomplished. And if you, my supervisor, my leader, you know, my boss, you can tell me what you want accomplished and then let me figure it out. You know, let me use my brain. Let me use my skills. Let me create something. That's a second level of engagement. And I think that it's a little bit more rare. It's not always the employee's fault. One of the big ahas in this book, Alive at Work, is that A lot of times, supervisors and leaders they say they want innovation and creativity, but what they really want is innovation and creativity that works, right? That pays off. Uh When you use engaging your creativity, your your creative forces, and you're innovating, and it doesn't go as you're expected, and maybe you make somebody angry, or maybe it doesn't actually work, then you get punished, right? If you get punished enough times for being creative, you'll stop being creative. And you'll just do what they say. So that's hands, that's head. And then the third one is heart. You know, this idea that some of us actually care about what we do, meaning you care if this show arouses people. That's true. And you you care if this show helps people get more living out of life and sort of maybe become better at their jobs and at their work. Increase their awesome quotient. <laughs> yeah. So you might actually care that that happens, and that notion of bringing your emotions to work and sort of letting the work define you. We're on this little round planet. Maybe it's forty years, and maybe it's eighty. Uh, it Probably isn't much more than hundred. And in that short amount of time, most of our waking hours are going to be at work. Yeah. You know, most of the time that we're awake, we're going to be working. And so this idea that you might even care about that. I think with a lot of my friends, that's rare, to be honest. It works a thing you do to get money. It's not a thing that you really care about, and you would jump to another job as soon as possible. And the evidence does bear that out. I mean, people are job hopping like crazy. You know, they'll leave one company to go to another one for 8% more money. That would imply to me that they weren't very engaged in their hearts.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. right, Well, thank you. Well, thank you for indulging me here. So it sounds like you're saying, that these numbers smell about right in your heart and mind and experience and research.
1: Yeah, that. And I like that you brought it up because I actually think it's very good to stay critical, you know, not cynical, but it actually is really important to stay critical about what we're learning about the workplace. And so I'm kind of just glad you brought it up. And, you know, again, whether or not you use that totally up to you, but I actually think that is a pretty important and good question to think about You know, how do we know disengagement is rampant? That's a good question. Okay, cool.
0: Well, so, gotcha. Now that we've laid that groundwork. (laughs) You know, so you have say something pretty provocative that human brains, and and like all mammal brains, are not built for repetition. And indeed, it is a need of ours to do some exploring, some experimenting, some learning. Can you share what's some of the most um, potent uh, research evidence underlying this?
1: Okay. The thing that I didn't understand when I was in school, I don't think anybody took the time to tell me about this, is that there's this one part of our brain that can be called the ventral striatum. And that's buzzwordy and you know that's scientific and all. But some people, these affective neuroscientists, these people that study the brain uh, on emotions, and you know, where do emotions come from? That's called affective neuroscience. They call this the seeking system. And this seeking system is something within our brain that urges us from a very early age, and I mean babies, you know, babies, to explore what we don't know, to become interested in what we don't yet understand, to push on the boundaries of cause and effect. And I don't mean just humans by the way. I mean mammals. If you go to a zoo, for example, the animals that are fed on plates are not doing as well as the animals where they hide the food or they have to chase the food, where they have to sort of seek it out. And so, one thing that was really surprising and even shocking to me is that we've got this part of our brain that's urging us, you know, to be creative, to be curious, to understand the why, to understand the impact of what we do, and yet, I guess you'd say starting during the Industrial Revolution, that's not how we have set up our organizations, and I think that that's one of the keys to the book, and you know, we can have a lot of fun with that if you want, but you know, just to throw it out there briefly, Henry Ford did not see creativity and innovation in his workers, as a good thing.
0: Right? It's like, why is it when I hire a pair of hands, I must <laughs> yes. get a... What was it? Yes.
1: <laughs> why must I always get a head and a heart? Yes. <laughs> like, why can't I just automate this baby? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they didn't have machine learning back then. They didn't have robotics. So really, the human was just supposed to be the robotic. And, and you know, more power to him. It worked. He, uh-huh. You know, he, nobody copied him for 10 years, and he made it in black for 10 years. And he made a lot of money. but. Things didn't change quite as fast as now. You know, now you don't get 10 years to paint it in black. Right. Customer tastes and the environment seem to move at a much faster pace. And so I think that we got into the habit of shutting off people's seeking systems. We created measurement systems and reward systems and punishment systems and promotion systems that were all kind of based on, well, we know what you're supposed to do. Now just do it and we'll measure you. And I'm not sure that those management technologies are built for activating the seeking system. You know, I think that they're kind of built to put it to sleep.
0: Understood. Well, so that's powerful stuff. And I feel this in my own experience strongly in terms of if I have had a day or two or three of repetitive stuff, and, and sometimes there's just things get repeated. I just I don't want to be dramatic, but it's like something inside of me is is like dying or atrophying or just sleepy, and I'm not alive at work, as you might say oh, uh, in the title. Have you
1: been disengaged once, Pete? <laughs> yeah, it, it's happened before, <laughs> sure.
0: Yeah, i too. Mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, totally. It's, and sometimes it was just sort of like just a necessity is like, "All right, I have to categorize all of these transactions for my accountant before the taxes. It's just that is what has to happen now. Repeat, repeat, repeat and so it's way in a way, I guess there's another system at work which is um that I just like to you know win to achieve to conquer the thing, so in a way I get some engagement and motivation and drive from that, but it's much less fun That ooh, I'm really intrigued by this thing that I'm learning and exploring, and oh, what about this implication if I try it that way?
1: That's right. Uh, You've made a lot of good points there, but two that I'll pick up on. The first one is this idea that not all of our day has to be full of that curiosity and that sensation-seeking in order to end up with a day that feels meaningful, that feels like you've advanced something I, I, i'm not so panglossian that i believe that any of our work or any of our lives can be 100% seeking all the time you know that that almost sounds like some sort of an addiction in a way i it's not like i'm pushing that far but i think you brought up a second really important point is sure you can do that for a day or even a week but imagine if you had to do it for 40 years right imagine if for roughly 280 days Two hundred ninety days a year, you spent roughly eight to ten hours doing a thing that you had done thousands of times before, and that withering, atrophying feeling of wasting away. I think that that is really humanistic, and I think it's it's really potent to think of it. <laughs> Here's what's interesting: for Henry Ford, that was a bug. That was a problem. So, uh, the seeking system was a, a bug in our sort of makeup that he had to overwhelm by paying, you know, the $5 day. He had to sort of use extrinsic motivation to sort of force people to do this thing. He also could use some fear, you know, because if you're paying a $5 a day, which sounds great, I can dangle over firing you, which sounds pretty anxiety producing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, just both sides of that coin of... External motivation means there's the system you're generating there might be anxiety and fear. And I think that that is how a lot of our management systems work. You know, I'm not trying to be draconian. I'm not trying to act as though capitalism's is bad. I'm, I'm not even saying that leaders go into this thinking, you know, how do I squash the souls of the workers I think what they're thinking about is how do I do things efficiently? How do I make predictability? How do I know that that thing will run on time and have a certain quality level? How do I know it'll ship on the right day? So I think the metrics and the systems and the procedures and the policies that sort of pin us down aren't evil. I think that they're practical, but what I hope to be bringing up like with you right now, but also with the book more generally, is just the idea that If the world's changing faster, that approach may not be getting us to the best ends anyway. It may not only hurt humanistically, it may hurt competitively.
0: That's an intriguing, a big idea there. But I'd like to maybe focus us a little bit in terms of the sort of the the here and now and individual professionals, as opposed to the global world of work evolving. I'm curious, what... Can we do to connect to the more that creativity, the self-expression, the motivation, the purpose, given how the world is today? Uh, do you have some, some solutions, some best practices that we can latch onto?
1: That's really good, and we can chat about both what can leaders do to help their teams, and we can also talk about what individual employees can do to help themselves. Yes, so I think those are both really important.. Real- there's three things, three triggers that seem to ignite the seeking system and we can play around with, you know, any of those that you're interested in. The first one is what we already discussed, which is self-expression. It's this idea of putting out to the world, you know, who you really are and what you are when you're at your best. That's one of them. Second one is the notion of experimentation. And that's just playing around, being curious, trying to understand the boundaries And then the third one is personalized purpose, meaning I feel that the purpose is important, that I understand the why of my work. So, anyway, we can actually have a lot of fun. I could give you a quick story at the company level, and I could give you a quick story at the human level if you'd like about those.
0: Yes, I would like that. And I'm curious, as you lay out these three parameters, is it fair to say, you know, when it comes to these seeking systems, if I do. One of them will I kind of feed or nourish the other two?
1: It's a great question. I would say they don't have to be. There's a really fancy word called orthogonal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> try to use that one one time. Well, today. you said
0: Panglossian earlier, so I mean you're you're on a hot streak today with vocabulary.
1: <laughs> all down, though. A friend said these are the four words you need to use on that interview, so I'm just kind of moving through the pages here. <laughs> what I'll do is say that. In my real experiences with real companies, they do seem to work together, and in both the studies I'm going to talk about, they do seem to work together. So why don't I tell you a study first about Whitfro, which is an Indian call center, since we're on a call right now, and then I can tell you maybe a specific story about something that happened at KLM, um, which is an airline in the Netherlands. And... I'll move real quick at first, if you want. And then you dig in where you find it most interesting. Do you know what I mean?
0: Oh, sure thing. Let's do it.
1: Okay. So the study is really cool because it was a field experiment. And this big call center in Wipro, which is a mammoth technology company in India, they allowed us to play um, with about 700 people. And these are 700 people that they just hired. And they let us put them in three different conditions. The very first hour, the very first day and one was a pure control group one focused a lot on incorporating them into the corporate culture and then the one that i wanted to focus on this is the one that i didn't know if it would work or not and this ended up being that second paper that won you know best paper and what we did is we let those people in those conditions show up And the very first hour the very first day we had a boss ask them who are you when you're at your best you know before we even talk about the job and all the things you got to do specifically we want to know more about you. So they really just let them write. They let them write little stories about times that they can remember being as good as that they were capable of. And that might not even have been at work. You know that might have been at home or it might have been with family. So they wrote these stories and then they got a chance to uh, introduce themselves to each other and they got a chance to play some some games together as a bunch of newcomers. But what we learned is in that condition When we started with self-expression, we were able to reduce quitting by 32% six months later. There you go. So somehow that one hour on the very first day ignited something interesting that they felt differently about Wipro as an employer, and they're more likely to stick around. And then we did something where we went and got all the company data on their customers. We got data on how happy they were making the customers because they were supposed to be solving problems, you know, for a Hewlett-Packard printer or for American Airlines flight that didn't go. uh, They're supposed to be helping their customers be happier. And we got that data and we found that, indeed, the customers were statistically significantly happier in this condition where we started on the first day with this uh, self-expression.
0: Well, that's so good. Well, that sounds like it deserves best paper. Nice <laughs> job, Dan. That's, that is a nice breakthrough. Thank you. So cool. So then... I'm curious, you mentioned the games. So if anyone says, I'm so doing that, like right away, okay, how do we replicate it? You say, who are you at your best? They, they write a bit and introduce themselves as such. And you said there were some games there too.
1: Yep. And then what they could do is they could play any type of a team game where you had to work together to solve a problem. And we gave them that desert survival game that I'll bet you've heard about.
0: You got to prioritize which items you're going to take or, or score them That's as right. highly or something
1: always take the mirror oh yeah always you you know the airplane dan (laughs) (laughs) the rescue chopper (laughs) we would kill it on that game right now i don't need those iodine tablets why would i take iodine (laughs) anyway i don't think it matters though we also replicated this whole study back at Harvard where um, we looked at some data entry people in Boston, and we were able to find the same thing again. What it implies, you know, again, you can't know everything from any one study, but what it implies is there's a special charge that you can give people instead of treating them like a number or like a cog in a machine and just sort of, you know, you bring them in on the conveyor belt and say, okay, there's the job, get to work, are this. There seems to be something that is activated or ignited when you allow people, especially on the very first day when you literally don't know anyone yet, to introduce themselves as their best self and to start the employment relationship off with something not only positive, because, you know, this is me at my best, not me at my worst, and that's something that is shareable, you know, because a lot of them read the stories to each other. So that's one. You know, that's um, an empirical study. Seven hundred people. We were able to use statistical testing. We found that all the results were highly reliable, and we also replicated it in a second study. So that's a study. I also would like just to tell you a fun little story, though. And this is the KLM story. And I got lots of stories. I probably have more stories than studies. But this one, we can't tell you we caused this. You know, in the other one, we put people into different conditions. And then we know, yeah, this one is more of a story. This one is KLM Um, about five years ago. There was this senior leader that kind of was getting wise to the idea that social media was going to be a big deal. You know, if you think about it, five years ago, companies weren't really using social media very much to communicate with their customers. If you think of it, Instagram was kind of just getting going five years ago. So there's this one person here at London Business School pretty senior leader at Schiphol Airport, and he said, wow, you know, there's a, a billion people on Facebook. We're a really social business, but KLM is not really using social media very much at all. So they did this experiment where they put €10,000 in a budget, and they went to a group, about 100 employees, and they said to the employees, they said, are any of you people really into social media? Not only Facebook, but also Twitter was, you know, getting on. And uh, there was one called Foursquare that was big at the time. Remember that one?
0: Uh, yeah. I haven't heard much about that lately.
1: I don't know what happened to that one. <laughs> <laughs> but he said lots of people raised their hands. Loads of people were using this on their personal time. And some people were really into it. And the leader said to them, how many of you people would be willing to use social media, but for KLM? Like, help us use it. To connect with customers. And they said, What do you mean? He said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He was an old guy like I am now. He had never been on Twitter. He had never tweeted. He had never been on Facebook. He didn't have a Facebook page. So he said, You know, to be honest, I'm a dinosaur, but at least I can see the writing on the wall. I can see that this is getting big. Are any of you willing to help? And he said, Most of the hands went down. But these eight people came up to him and said, Would you let us? Would you let us? experiment with that, that 10,000 euro. He said, sure. Anyway, there's, uh, you can go find this on YouTube, but they've actually have this little experiment that they tried where they counter Googled people. This is just these eight employees came up with this idea. They counter Googled people. Anybody that tweeted about KLM, that put something on Facebook about KLM, that used Foursquare to check in with KLM, anybody that did that, they kind of counter Googled them. They figured out fun facts about them. Like who they were, where they were going, why they were going. And then they bought them little personalized gifts. Like they'd spend 10 euro, 20 euro, 30 euro. And they'd buy them these little gifts. And then they would find them in the airport. They somehow would track them down. And they'd race up to them. Oh, that's
0: so good. That's okay. I was like, how do you know where they are? Oh, because that's real time. And they're getting on a plane is how you know. Okay.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then they filmed them presenting these gifts that let them make like an ad. That's great. But then even more great was these are really social media savvy people. And they tweeted the hell out of this. Yes. They Facebooked the hell out of this. They got just on Twitter alone, a million movements in three weeks. That's pretty good for 10,000 bucks. (laughs) Um, What's so cool about it, from my perspective, is when you watch the little film and stuff, not only are the customers kind of delighted, like you can see their eyes are like popping out when they're getting these personalized gifts. If you look at the employees' eyes, they're also excited. They are feeling entrepreneurial. You know, they're sort of like running around an airport, they're buying gifts, they're making things happen, and it's their idea that they're sort of bringing to life and again I mean that's not a study that's a story but again what it starts to show is and now this is experimentation when you allow people to try out their own ideas you often can get so much more energy so much more creativity so much more caring if you will that isn't there if it's something you've done the thousandth time that your boss is kind of evaluating how efficiently you've done it and if you don't kind of do it just the way that's most efficient, well, then there's a bit of a loss of raise or loss of promotion or loss of status. And so what I'm so intrigued by here, and, you know, I can give you story after story. The book's just chock-a-block full of this, is how this doesn't cost very much. You know, for these two examples, just to kind of play this back, Wipro, I mean, that was just the leader's time. That was an hour of time. So, like, there was basically no cost there. In the KLM experiment, yeah, it took ten thousand euro. But to be honest, ten thousand euro—I mean, you—to <laughs> get these eight people that charged up, what type of a bonus or a raise would you have had to have given them? What kind of money would you have to pay the media to get a, a million movements on Twitter? You know, what if you're going to pay a, a marketing firm to try to get you an ad where you're delighting customers and so on? So the idea is with relatively small nudges and little bits of money, I'm finding ways to light up employees that not only seem to create better outcomes for the business. So the competition gets better, but also it puts more living in the life. It makes work feel more like real life and not sort of that commute to the weekend that I mentioned earlier.
0: Right. No, that's is, this is so good. I'm loving this. I'm digging this, and and it's also cool. Is like, it's just sort of additional psychological concepts are connecting in terms of with that self-expression when people say that that in a way like that's their first impression, and they're they're kind of giving themselves a bit of a, a reputation to live up to and be consistent with. It's like, hey, I told all these people I'm like this, so I should probably try to actually live congruently to that because I've kind of went on record and, and it's, I don't consciously or subconsciously that's at work. And then with the KLM instance, it's like just being of service, you know, being doing something for someone just naturally lights you up. It's so it's so cool to see these synergies in terms of we got the seeking systems and then they're, they're juiced up all the more by the, these extra implications.
1: That's right. And you know, those extra implications, that's why I was so intrigued when you said, do these things move together? And I think that even right now you've kind of just reconvinced me that they often do move together. For instance, in that KLM example, let's just walk through this. Number one, they were experimenting and playing with the boundaries and sort of pushing on what they knew. Number two, they were connected with their purpose, meaning the works, why the why of the work was to delight customers. And they firsthand got to see them smile and sort of say, thank you. And then finally, the idea that that was their own decisions about what gifts they bought. That was their own self-expression in terms of, you know, trying to approach not only the big problem of here's how we can use social media, but the small problem of, you know, what gift should we get them? I think it's really interesting just that maybe it's often the case that these three things move together and maybe that's a way that leaders could actually think of kind of a checklist like with the work are the employees in that job having the chance to self-express are they having a chance to play in a sandbox and experiment and are they connected personally with the why of the work do they see the impact of what they do all day long
0: that's so powerful, uh, Dan. I love this stuff. I <laughs> I would like to have a two-hour episode with you, but uh, I, I know what's on your calendar, so I'll just have to ask: Is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a couple of your favorite things?
1: Yeah, earlier, I mentioned that I would tell you some stories about real employees doing things. You know, not waiting for the boss to say, "Here's ten thousand euro, go play." And I thought I would tell you a quick story I heard recently from somebody in my class.
0: Well, I'm so intrigued, Dan. Let's bring it.
1: I'll try to do this one really quick. There's a guy in my class, and he started off as a salesperson. He's pretty good at it. So he got to be kind of the lead of the sales team, and then still pretty good at it. So he got to be a sales manager. And he said, right at manager, something weird started happening where he found that he was in a lot of bullshit meetings (laughs) where he didn't really want to be in them. He didn't find them that compelling. It was about, you know, what orders were hot or what new ways of doing policy, but he still got to get out about three days a week. So he's still pretty good. So they gave him one more promotion and now he was director of sales. And he said, he just about died inside because he said it was all bullshit meetings. Now (laughs) it was all about like, these are the cycles, and these are the policies, and you got to fill out these forms, and you got, and he never got to get out there, which is what he loved. He loved, you know, selling. He loved turning people on. So anyway, I just wanted to tell you this quick story. He did something that we call job crafting. He would not have called it that. That's what we call it, job crafting, which means anybody can look at their own job and say, "Can I increase my own self-expression? Can I find ways to be experimenting with the why of my work, or can I?" try new things, not because my boss told me to, and not even because it's a KPI or a metric. Can I just put more in? And if you read a book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, there's actually a lot of examples of people in that book who are doing this, where they're actually taking more out of their work by putting more in in the first place. So anyway, with this guy, what he does is he decides once a week, you know, still four days a week, he's just doing his thing. But one day a week, Sometimes only half of a day a week. He just goes out and meets with customers, like real customers actually using their products. So, in this case, it was a distribution kind of company. So, he would go to a supermarket and he would just literally talk with the supermarket manager about what's hot and what's not. You know, what are your problems? How can I help? He would go to, he'd go to an extra distributor. He would go to a place that actually loads the trucks and he would talk to truck drivers and he would talk to the shipping managers. Anyway, the point is, this was on top of all his normal stuff. He just did this. For free, you could say. Mm -hmm. But he said two things happened. Number one is he realized that it really lit him up to be out there connecting and understanding it. And that bled back into his meetings. He said, like, say he was doing a hiring meeting where he's sitting with an applicant. Rather than just asking kind of questions he was disconnected with, he would be talking about questions of something he just witnessed on Friday. Or if he was in a meeting and they were talking about the new trends, he could be thinking about those trends relative to the supermarket manager and what he or she said. So that's number one, that it helped personalize the work again by feeling the purpose just once a week when you were actually out there in the re- in the field. Okay, that's number one. He said the second thing he learned is he made a lot of sales. Yeah. <laughs> because he was there not to make sales, just to listen And he said, nothing sells better than not trying to sell. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll stop right there. This guy said he'd drive home and feel like, yep, I still got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is awesome. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A quote that I find really inspiring may not be a very uplifting one in some ways, but I'm going to just tell it to you anyway. Somebody said that if you just killed the insects from the face of the earth, if there weren't any insects left, within five years, there would be no life on earth. But if you took out all the humans, within five years, all other species would flourish. And this is something I think about quite a bit. I I think about, as humans, we have this really strong ability to change the world. We seem to somehow have gotten ourselves out of the food chain. You know, we're kind of out of the natural pecking order. And we we instead kind of spend our energy and our time doing things to the world and, you know, doing things that aren't really possible, like flying. Like we don't have wings. Why are we flying? But what I try to think a lot about is given that we have this opportunity, what can we do that's good? That's something that for me, I keep an eye on. You know, it's something that I try to Try to think about the why of the work that way. And I think it's actually a question that lots of us can can ask ourselves. And, you know, that's one. And then I was going to give you a second quote. Um, and this one is much closer to the book. This is by uh, Jacques Pankset. He was a pioneer in this affective neuroscience that I talked about. And he, he died last spring. And so I kind of wanted to, you know, bring him back to life for a moment with one of his quotes. This is a direct quote. He said, when the seeking systems are not active, Human aspirations remain frozen in an endless winter of discontent. Okay, That's a heavy one, but it essentially says, if we shut down the seeking systems of humans, we shut down the best parts of being human.
0: Mm, that is powerful. Thank you.
1: Cool. Uh, and how about a favorite book? So many. I mentioned Adam Grant already, so I'm going to re-mention that. That give-and-take book I really, really love, and it kind of moved me quite a bit. Second one is Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens. If you want to look at how we got ourselves out of the food chain, that book is a must read. That's 50,000 years of human history, and it is really worth your time. Uh, And then a third one, I would say, is Tim Wilson. He wrote a book called Redirect. And Redirect could probably change the story that you tell yourself about yourself.
0: Oh, excellent. Thank you.
1: Yeah, those are really good.
0: And is there a particular nugget you share that you find often resonates and gets quoted back to you?
1: Do you mean about what? About quotes or about...
0: Yeah, in terms of as you are articulating the good message associated with with seeking systems and organizational behavior.
1: I do. You know, I can tell you one. The book's only coming out right now, but we sent out a load of these pre-copies, you know, to the press and family and friends and, you know, CEOs and stuff like that. And I would say the quote that's come back the most often is disengagement at work isn't a motivational problem. It's a biological one. And that, that is what tripped me up two years ago. When I first learned about the seeking system, what I was so blown, about, was blown away by was how this is part of our physical brain. This isn't sort of like the psychology. This is the biology. <laughs> And I found that to be really interesting. And I do think other people are resonating with that a little bit.
0: That is good. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, Dan, where would you point them?
1: I think best is dancable.com, but it has a little dash. So it's dan-cable.com.
0: All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: What I would say is if in our own work, we could remember That there is this part of us that is urging us to self-express, to experiment, to personalize purpose. If we could treat that as not a bug the way Henry Ford is, but as a feature, that's a feature of our brain. When you're feeling that way at work, don't put it aside and squash it. (laughs) Remember that that is nature's way of saying you're better than this. You've got this now. You've got to learn more. And I feel as though in the old days, that would have got you fired. And I think in the new days, that'll keep you relevant, and that'll keep you agile, and that'll keep you charged up about work.
0: I love it. Dan, thank you for this. This is powerful and engaging, so intriguing. I wish you and the book and all your work, you know, tons of luck.
1: Thank you so much. It's been really a joy to talk with you, Pete. Oh, you too. Okay, bye-bye.
0: For me personally, the big takeaway from Dan is that these seeking systems, are, are, they're there and it's kind of unavoidable that they be there. And it's not so much a matter of I need to buckle down and be more disciplined and motivated and in order to, to churn out more repetitive stuff, but rather it's just fundamental to our human experience. And so in a way, that's pretty nice in terms of being able to be a little bit more kind or go easy on myself in terms of, Hey, you know, actually this has got to happen. You got to have some time for that exploration and, and checking out the new stuff and not always routine. So very helpful. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F279. And I hope if you haven't already, you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Kim Powell. And she is talking about some further research about what it takes to have a pathway to becoming an executive, some misconceptions, and what's the real deal when it comes to the CEO next door. Until next time, peace.